Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantin Kissing. And this is a show for you if you're bored of watching people having arguments on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our absolutely fantastic expert guest this week is an evolutionary psychologist and author, Jeffrey Miller. Hey. Welcome to Trigonometry. Great to be here. It's great to Bobby have you here. here. Uh, the first question we always ask is just tell our audience, who many of whom will know who you are, uh, a little bit about who you are, how are you, where you are, what's been your journey through life so far? Well, I'm currently working as an evolutionary psychology professor, so I study human nature, and I work at a little place called University of New Mexico, which is actually in America, in New Mexico. And um, I spent nine years in Britain, so I'm pretty familiar with British culture throughout the 90s. Um, and I had um, you know, pretty straightforward academic life, undergrad, grad school, postdocs, yada, yada, get tenure, do research, write books. And um, I guess over the last few years, I've sort of tried to cultivate more of a public um, facing uh, persona on, on Twitter and doing interviews like this, because I think there's a lot of stuff that um, evolutionary psychologists in particular know about that the public should also know about, and that's relevant to a lot of current debates. Mm. And so what is evolutionary psychology? Because you know, there's th so many different strands of it, but how would you sum it up? It's a science that really only started about 30 years ago. It kind of started when I was in grad school at Stanford, and it was sort of being invented under my nose by some of the, the folks who were working there, like Lita Cosmides, John Tooby, um, David Buss, Steve Pinker. And some of those names you might know. It's basically the attempt to understand human nature by pulling together a lot of ideas and information from different fields like evolutionary biology and genetics and animal behavior and um, primate research and hunter-gatherer anthropology. You kind of mix it all up and you distill it down and you get insights into uh, what were our ancestors doing and, and what did they have to do to survive and find mates and reproduce and raise kids and live in groups. So I spend a lot of my time with my head sort of back in prehistory, hmm. right? Thinking, what was life like? What were the challenges? Like, how did they court each other? How did they fall in love? How did they form relationships? How did that all work? And you, it, you know, obviously it's a little speculative, but you do the best you can trying to bring together these different information sources, you develop hypotheses, then you test them, and usually they fail. <laughs> you go back and invent, <laughs> you invent more hypotheses and test them, and you know you try to get to the truth. And that's, that's the game, that's evolutionary psychology. And it's a fairly established field now. There was a time when people kind of didn't take it seriously, but it is very established. And you talk about the fact that there are certain things that you guys in your field now know that the general public maybe do not, and in fact that maybe is being pushed back against by certain elements. So tell us a little bit about some of those things. What are the things that you guys scientifically have established about human beings that are not known or controversial nowadays? I guess two big things I would talk about is that there used to be a stereotype kind of in moral psychology that if you think about human morality and ethics and how we treat each other, there is a view that in prehistory, everybody was kind of selfish and stupid and terrible. And then you invent civilization and religion and kind of gradually make people behave better. I think that's dead wrong. I think 
our capacity for kindness and altruism and for signaling our moral virtues goes way back really deeply, like hundreds of thousands of years. And in modern society, we're also nice and virtuous and, and we try to be good to each other. And signal and, our virtues. And, <laughs> and, and do virtue signaling. I think virtue signaling is at least a million years old. Do you reckon it's, someone was doing that on the walls of a cave saying yeah, how great it was a I think so. Like, racism is bad. Racism is bad and behold the mammoth that I killed for the greater good of the group because, <laughs> because the mammoth had wrong think and it needed to die. <laughs> and, so I think that the roots of human morality go back deep, mm. and it's not just a matter of culture kind of making us nicer. Mm. The second big thing I would say is sex differences. I think evolutionary psychology has a really good understanding of why men and women tend to pursue different mating strategies and courtship strategies and have different priorities and preferences when it comes to relationships. A lot of that is caricatured and exaggerated in the popular press. A lot of it is sort of taken up by like the manosphere and the red pill guys mm. and the men's rights activists and sort of twisted and distorted in various ways. But I think we're a really useful counterbalance against gender feminism. Let's dive right into that because you talk about how some of those things are distorted on both sides. Yeah. So just for anyone who, who doesn't know anything about men and women, who doesn't know anything about evolutionary psychology, can you just break mm -hmm. down what are the differences between men and women physiologically yeah. and psychologically? And before we start, can I just make it absolutely clear that I don't see gender. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I think it's very important to my woke followers. Yeah. Sorry, Gary. You don't have any. Right. Yeah. <laughs> The basic difference, right, the, the fundamental difference is females, by definition, make a few larger gametes called eggs. Males, by definition, make a lot of smaller gametes called sperm. And a lot of else flows from that, right? Mm. If you're the sex that makes only a few gametes, it matters a lot who you choose as a mate, right? Mm. And particularly if you get pregnant inside your body instead of just laying eggs, Right? If you have um, internal pregnancy and, and gestation and then breastfeeding, a female human can only produce a kid about every two or three years under ancestral conditions where there's not like a big food glut. So her rate of reproduction is very limited. It's rate limited. And so for a female, what really matters is finding the best mate she can get and then getting the most investment from him that she can get. For male, it's really different. A male can potentially produce as many kids as women he copulates with in a given year. So you have examples like um, a lot of European males carry a Y chromosome from one of just three Bronze Age males who were probably warlords or local leaders. Genghis Khan won. Right? right, and then Genghis Khan in Asia, right, 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 sired apparently a lot of kids who carry his wife mm, on his own. Mm. And so that's a massive difference in terms of the upside of taking risks, right? If you're a male and it's like, I have a 50% chance of becoming the local warlord and having dozens of concubines, but a 50% chance of dying, you roll those dice no doubt, that's a risk totally worth taking. If you're a woman and it's like, I have a 50% chance of marginally improving my social status and getting a little more resources for my kids, or a 50% chance of dying, you take the opposite choice, mm. right? You're, you're more risk averse. 
So I think that's, a, that's the kind of fundamental difference is that males chase status, males are more risk tolerant, males are willing to go for broke in terms of a lot of kinds of competition from politics to sports to academia to art to you know whatever they're into. Um, and for women, the returns to doing those kinds of risks have traditionally been, been lower. Jeffrey, and there's a question I wanted to ask. So you're saying uh, males are more risk tolerant. Is that the reason why we get more males in prison than females statistically? I think it's one of the reasons. I mean, you also have a basic sex difference in aggression, right? Which are male bodies are literally designed to fight. There are dozens of aspects of the human face and skull and muscles and and bodies and, and immune system that show we are descended from guys who fought like a lot and were designed to do that. Can you go into a bit more detail on some of those aspects, how we are designed from that way? Well, there's some recent um, studies of even just the, the bone structure of the face showing men are kind of built to take a punch more than women. Mm. Um, the male brain is built to survive rapid acceleration and deceleration of the sort that you get if you're being clubbed in the head more than the female brain is. Um, and I think this is why, like, I love mixed martial arts, I love combat sports, it's great that women are getting into it. But I worry a little bit that when women get into, like, um, striking and grappling and, you know, jujitsu, that they might suffer different injury rates than men do, just because of these sex differences in, in the physicality and, and the sort of formidability. So it's important to understand these things, just to, at a kind of basic um, medical level. Now, I didn't expect the interview to go in this way, but there was a there's a, been a debate, especially in UFC, about there is a you know there's a trans fighter who is fighting in the women's category, and by all uh, accounts, absolutely annihilating. Do you think yeah. that this person is at an unfair advantage to women? Has an unfair advantage over women? Absolutely, of course, it's an unfair advantage. If you grow up with a male body and then decide I'm going to transition, that's totally fine. You can do that. I'm a libertarian. Do what you want with your body. But then if you enter into a domain where you're fighting against women who've grown up with women's bodies and have those adaptations physically and behaviorally, like nobody's really going to care until the first fatality. But there will be fatalities. There will be fatalities when trans women beat the living crap out of women in these sports, literally. And then we're going to have to rethink, is, is this really a good idea um, to, to sort of follow the trans party line about, you know, sports inclusiveness? And why is it, do you think, that actually people are so reluctant to address this if it's putting somebody in physical danger? Well, because they're terrified of the reputational danger that they, they suffer from the trans activists who are among the most vicious um, and uh, ornery and, and, and sort of dog piley people on, on the internet. Everyone's frightened of them. Everyone I know who's involved in podcasting or YouTubes or, or public outreach or writing for Quillette, like those are the people you have to be most cautious about. Mm. And so I'm even a little nervous sitting here talking about them. But they have instilled a culture of terror that says, if you don't follow the way we want you to talk about these issues, 
we will target you, we will come after you, and we will accuse you of everything bad we can imagine. As you talk about it, I realize that it must be true because the conversations we have about this issue are so dishonest now. Like, yeah. I, 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 we had a, a national a debate about it like a week ago where a good morning britain one of the most popular shows they were literally mm -hmm. talking about is it an unfair advantage or not and everyone knows yeah you know there are physical differences between men and women and you know you talk about differences in aggression you talk about how the body is designed but there's you know there's bone density there's lung capacity there's heart size all of these things are different between men and women yeah and, and everyone knows it and yet we talk about it as if it's it's a debate when, you know? I guess a turning point for me was um, in high school, I was taking Taekwondo, which is a Korean combat mm. sport. And I wasn't that good. I was like a green belt, which is barely an advanced beginner. And then you do your, your sparring where you're supposed to sort of show that you're ready to advance to brown belt. Okay, so I was, I was pitted against a college woman who was a black belt and I'm told, spar, go ahead. And I was like, sensei, I'm not sure this is safe because like, I'm five inches taller and I'm only 17, but I, I don't know if her skill can overcome my just size. And he's like, don't worry about it. She's, she's well-trained. And within a minute, I'd done like a round out, roundhouse kick and just knocked her flat out, much to my total chagrin. <laughs> so I had a bit of a crush on her. <laughs> and sorry for knocking you out. And at that point, I realized like society is fed a line of, of bullshit mm. about this. And it is a danger to women. It was a danger to her. And it's also kind of an emotional danger to men because we don't, we literally don't real, realize our own strength. And if we're being, you know, fed a lot of movie images of like, uh, of course, um, you know, this female Marvel Avenger, you know, female assassin could overcome whatever the Hulk. It's like, no, no, she couldn't. It, the, like, there's no catching up once there's a certain size difference. Mm. Uh, so we got into politics very quickly. Yeah. Francis and I had the idea that we would stay away from it and talk about evolutionary psychology. Yeah. So let, let's let's keep exploring. So you talk about there's a difference in aggression. I assume that's because, again, men evolved to fight. What are some of the other differences between men and women, particularly when it comes to things like preferences and things that people are interested in and pursue? Because that has quite a big impact on our jobs, careers, you know, gender pay gap, etc. Yeah, I think, um, so I supported James Damore, the guy from Google who said there are important sex differences in, in personality traits and there tend to be sex differences in interests. So one important thing to realize is there is not an average sex difference in IQ itself like overall intelligence is pretty much dead even That's between men and women. <laughs> and it's disappointing to both sexes <laughs> you know, who, who, who hope, each sex desperately hopes the other sex actually knows what they're doing. <laughs> and, uh, but there are, there are differences in, in um, preferences and interests, like mm. Simon Baron Cohen um, at, at um, Cambridge or Oxford, wherever he is now, has shown, you know, men are more interested in systematizing, which means kind of putting things in order conceptually. And that's why you get more male train spotters who are like, this is exciting, like the train's <laughs> running on schedule. And I love stamp collecting and like military history, like, oh no, there's a gap in my knowledge, I must learn more mm -hmm. about the Ottoman mm -hmm. Empire. 
And women are more, on average, into empathizing, which is kind of connecting with people, understanding their beliefs and desires, building social networks, etc. And I think that's accurate. And I think that explains a lot of the occupational differences, right? Where men tend to go into um, things that can kind of um, leverage either their aggressive instincts, like the military, or their tendencies to um, systematize, like coding, computer programming. And women tend to go more often into the caring professions, nursing, social work, um, etc. Um, and that's not to say that any profession should be only open to one sex. I think there's plenty of highly systematizing females, mm. like my girlfriend who mm. you interviewed. And there's plenty of highly empathic men who might make great psychotherapists. Um, so everybody should be free to follow what they want. But we shouldn't necessarily expect any given profession to be 50-50. So if I was a gender feminist, I would be screaming at you right now mm. that all of the stuff may well be true, but it's the fault of the patriarchy that men have been indoctrinated to be aggressive. It's toxic mm. masculinity. And women have been indoctrinated to be caring because those are the less paid professions. So that's where we yeah. shove all the women. Yeah. You know, evil patriarchy has created this and we must smash it and destroy it. Well, that's fine. And then I'd say, go read some anthropology. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, watch some BBC natural history. Look at the sex differences you see in other animals. Um, the bizarre thing about the gender feminist view, right, if you take a broader cross-species perspective, is they're basically saying, okay, for the other 4,000 species of mammals, you see certain sex differences between males and females that just happen to line up perfectly with the gender differences you see in modern humans. And then magically, those mammal sex differences got erased. And we had a blank slate for a few thousand years, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And then there's this evil thing called patriarchy that reinvents from the ground up exactly the standard mammalian sex differences and for reasons unknown, imposes them on modern humans. Like that is the least parsimonious theory you can imagine, right? Like, why would you go to all that trouble if, if, it, if it could just be, well, we're mammals, always have been. The other thing I think that's terrible about the gender feminist view is it basically invalidates all the preferences of currently living men and women, right? It basically says to women, you have a false consciousness. You think you want this, but that's been put into you by patriarchy. It's not a valid view. And it says to men, you think you want this. It's toxic masculinity. You don't really want it. It's been indoctrinated. Your beliefs are invalid. So what are we going to do? Have one or two or three generations where everybody's preferences about everything are treated with contempt, right? Mm. That seems to be the gender feminist view that... Uh, at some future point, we will create people whose preferences we can take seriously. But until that point, we basically have to engineer people to do a whole bunch of shit that they don't want to do. Now, what you're saying with the difference of sex differences, so you've got <coughs> male and female, does it change a little bit with gay men and women? Or is it very much the same for them? It changes a lot in some ways and not much in other ways. So, for example, if you look at gay male mating strategies, 
like the preference for novelty and variety in sexual partners, the gay men look a lot like straight men, right? It's just gay men can act the way straight men would want to act <laughs> if straight women were as open to casual sex as other gay men yeah. are to other gay men, right? Yep, yeah, yeah, yeah okay, yeah, 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 yeah. And so, like, I don't know, if I was in college and I could have flipped a switch between being straight and gay, I might have flipped the gay switch because it just seems like so much more fun and <laughs> so easy <laughs> to be able to find people who want as much variety as you do. By contrast, um, lesbian culture seems to be much more oriented towards make a deep connection with one woman and form a long-term relationship. And, you know, the standard joke is like um, third date for a lesbian is, is you know, move-in date. It's like mm -hmm. get together and then um, live together. So in that way, um, you kind of have the, the basic sex difference in what you want in a relationship, it just happens to be directed towards a different sex than usual. Because there's also talks, uh, you know, the, apparently with the gender pay gap, that mm -hmm. the fact that lesbians, that there doesn't seem to be that much of a gender mm -hmm. pay gap between mm -hmm. gay women and men mm -hmm. in general. Yeah, that's what I've seen. Um, and, you know, to the extent that a lesbian will have a slightly more uh, masculinized brain, both kind of genetically and hormonally and culturally, right? A lesbian's more used to kind of playing the male role in certain ways. Like they need to do that when they're courting each other. Somebody's got to take the initiative. Um, <laughs> then you might expect that they'd be like more assertive when they um, mm. are in their job or asking for promotions and raises than, than straight women might be. Um, and also I think um, gay and lesbian people generally, I don't know if this is still true, I suspect there's a little bit of an IQ advantage in general, um, where I think on average they're a little smarter. They're certainly more open in terms of this, this personality trait of openness to experience. So I would expect that would also play out professionally, right? Where you, some of the advantage that you're seeing that looks like a sexual orientation advantage is actually just kind of being smarter and more open-minded and, and um, more assertive, and also just having to deal with more flack from society. Mm -hmm. So getting a thicker skin, you know. If, um, if you're a gay male, it's hard to grow up, it's hard to go through high school. You have to be prepared to take a lot of teasing from other guys. And so then if you get into the corporate world and people are like making fun of your PowerPoint, like it's not that big a deal compared to the teasing that you've already suffered. Mm. So, that's, so that's fascinating. So in a way, you could gay men are actually tougher a lot of the time than straight men. I think so. I, I think emotionally and, and um, in terms of having a strong sense of their identity. Um, the, the irony, of course, now is that I suspect most gay men have a stronger sense of what it means to be a gay man than most straight men have of, of what it means to be a straight man, right? There's a crisis of masculinity. Most straight men are terrified of being called, you know, toxically masculine. And so a lot of guys don't know how to behave unless they're gay. The gay guys know how to behave. <laughs> yeah. Straight guys don't. 
But you said there's a crisis of masculinity. What does that mean? Because I hear this a lot on Twitter and all the rest of it. Why do you think there's a crisis of masculinity? I think partly it's an engineered crisis. I think partly it's an intentionally designed crisis from gender feminism, which is to take away all the traditional sources of uh, masculine virtue and meaning and to say those are invalid, right? Being a traditional hunter archetype or warrior archetype is no longer valid. You're not allowed to do that. And men are like, well, what are we allowed to do? And the gender feminists are like, not our problem. We don't give a shit. That's for you to figure out. <laughs> and um, partly it's a, it's a crisis that's created by the sort of legal atmosphere, the Me Too movement, the, the terror of being accused of sexual harassment or stalking or coercion. Um, partly it's the feminized psychotherapy movement where, you know, if men are having trouble in a relationship and they go to a therapist, which will usually be a woman. Um, it'll be a kind of two-on-one, you know, women beating up a guy emotionally, saying everything you want and believe and desire is illegitimate. And you have to change to be more like us. So I think part of the, um, part of the crisis is from my own field, psychology. We were talking about this before you got here with Francis. Um, and. You know, I certainly feel like we're starting to live in a society which assumes that a lot of the basic male desires, wishes, behaviors are in and of themselves toxic. Yeah. Uh, and this is, and we were talking about just Jordan Peterson. Um, the, the number one question that I see him being asked every single interview is, most of your following is male. Yeah. And, and then they go into a question. And, it, and, and the only way you would ask that question, I think, is if you thought there was something wrong with yes, being male, exactly. because otherwise, it, like Francis said, you know, if if it was mostly women that were following someone, mm -hmm. that would never even get brought up because it wouldn't be considered noteworthy. Yeah. So, do you think we live in a society now that increasingly essentially thinks that men are bad at some level? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. The whole concept of patriarchy says the la you know the last few thousand years of civilization, where like all this amazing stuff was invented and economic growth like took off and we're a thousandfold richer than our ancestors and life is a hundred times better. That's all patriarchy and that's all due to the oppression of women and colonialism. And men get no credit for any of that, even though it was mostly men working on it um, at the sort of cutting edge of invention. And so basically the last few thousand years of civilization has been rejected, right? And everything bad that happened is sort of put on men and men are told, yeah, you're basically the evil sex. There's a possibility of redemption, which is offered by gender feminism, which says, if you just become more like women, everything will be okay. <laughs> <laughs> the way you're saying it sounds so soothing though, Jeffrey. I'm like, yes, I need, that's what I need to do. I need to become more like a woman. See, this is why everyone's transitioning. Yeah. Um, the, so the thing is that, I mean, just to try and explore the counter argument, which we always try and do on the show, a lot of bad things has happened over the last two, 3,000 years. There have been a lot of, you know, c colonialism was 
there were elements of it which were very mm -hmm. bad, right? Uh, it, it, I think it's indisputable that for a long time we, we did live in a very unfair society that treated both minorities and women badly. Mm -hmm. I think no one would dispute that. I'm sure you wouldn't, yeah. right? So is it not an argument to say, well, you know, there's, there's excesses to this uh, kind of extreme forms of feminism, but overall it's a good movement. We do need to move towards, mm -hmm. you know, as much equality of opportunity as we possibly can and this is part of that. And yeah. yes, there are elements of masculinity that are toxic. Therefore, you know, we need to keep going. Otherwise, men will be oppressing women once again. Yeah, so I'm, I'm all for um, what you could call classical liberal feminism, right? Like my mom was a 70s feminist. She did a lot of organizing with a group called League of Women Voters, which in America helps get women out to vote and promotes female candidates and organizes political debates. And so my mom was a big deal in that local group. But her view was, we just want equal rights. We want the right to participate in political life and occupations and careers and education. And they were fairly non-theoretical, like they didn't have a strong gender feminist explanation of society. They just took a practical approach that said, if women participate more in business and life and politics, um, then all of those places will become friendlier to women and represent women's interests better. Mm -hmm. And then I think feminism got derailed in the 80s. I think what happened is you get the rise of academic feminism and they're like, well, the Equal Rights Amendment didn't pass in the 70s in America. What do we do now? Let's theorize about shit. Let's, let's write books about the patriarchy. Let's write books about how terrible men are. And that's where I think it went wrong. When they kind of got into the business of like this weird combination of ideology and activism and scholarship and sort of public outreach that said, no matter how much progress women make in equal rights, Nothing will ever change as long as the underlying systemic blah, blah, blah patriarchy is intact. So we have to overthrow all of society all at once. Good luck with that. <laughs> and then everything will be, you know, beautiful and equal. And I think that project has been a catastrophic failure and is actually worse than sort of the 1920s suffragettes or the 1970s women rights movement. And what effect do you think this movement has on men in particular? Mm. Because I can see, you know, sometimes men who being, oh, I don't really like using the word radicalized, I think it's the wrong, but I don't know another <clears throat> term to use when they get confronted by this type of thought. Yeah. Where people just say your very existence is an affront to my life, almost. I think there's two basic responses. If you ever are in a member of a group where you're again and again and again accused of being evil just because you're in the group, and this will be true whether it's a sex or a race or a religion or a, a political party or a football team supporter, whatever, two responses are you either like back off and you sort of shut up about it and you self-censor or in this case, you kind of self-castrate, right? Mm -hmm. Like you, you disavow the elements of masculinity that they're critiquing. 
or you lean forward and you're like, fuck you, I'm going to assert my masculinity. I'm going to go full red pill. I'm going to start reading, you know, first Jordan Peterson and then the pickup artist guys, Rollo Tomasi, whatever. And I'm going to get radicalized in, in, in the Reddit communities. Mm. And that's, both of those responses, I think, are, are sad and counterproductive. Deeply unhealthy as well. Yeah. Because the self-castrating guys who are like, I, I hate my masculinity. I hate it. Like, oh man, that's sad. Like, that's a recipe for depression and, and alienation and, and, and mating failure. Because mm. women are not attracted to that at all. Women are not attracted to people who hate themselves. Weird. <laughs> <laughs> and then the guys who go full red pill, but not in a smart way. Yeah. Right. Um, can get so belligerent and spend so much time fighting other red pill guys and becoming such assholes and, mm. and turning into trolls that, A, that's not very attractive either. Um, B, it's kind of hard to have a happy life if you sort of go around, in a way, hating women and blaming them for everything. Mm. So what I hope is that evolutionary psychology offers kind of a reasonable middle ground where you can assert your masculinity without being a dick about it. Mm. Mm. I think that's so important, and that's why we, we were grateful that you've come and talked to us, because I think these issues need to be talked about, because that polarization that we, we see in politics, which I want to get onto in a second, mm -hmm. it's happening in society as well. It's happening between men and women too. And like you say, people are either chopping their balls off, essentially, metaphorically, mm -hmm. or they're becoming assholes, genuinely yeah. misogynistic assholes. And you see it online all the time. Yeah. And that helps no one, because... Mm -hmm. You know, I've always said this, like the historically the two groups of people who've always needed to stick together more than anyone is men and women. Yeah. That's the two groups of people that have needed to cooperate throughout history more than anyone, right? Yeah. And if you take a step back from it and you ask, whose interests are really served, right, by alienating men from women and vice versa and creating this, like, weird little proxy war between the sexes. I think the answer is it's it's not really in the interests of either sex. I think it's in the interests of kind of, in a way, the corporate and political powers that be and the elites, and it's a kind of divide and conquer, mm. right? Mm. I think it's a lot easier to control a population in a, in a complex civilization like Britain or America if you have quite a bit of tension between the sexes, I think also at a marketing level, it helps sell shit because it creates profound insecurity in both sexes. You know, guys are like, I don't know what masculinity means anymore, so I better buy some more shit just in case. And the same thing happens with women. So I think if we could take a step back from this battle of the sexes and ask, you know, who's really profiting from it? Obviously, the political parties in America are profiting from it. I don't know to what extent that's also true here. But if you also have kind of sexually polarized politics, then, man, people just take more interest in politics. Mm. Because everyone's interested in their sex and their relationships and, you know, gender issues. And if you can politicize that man, that gets out the vote, that gets people passionate about a lot of political issues. Um, 
And I think we're all being kind of um, manipulated by, by that. What you just said there was just incredibly worrying, really, because the fact that we're being manipula manipulated, do you think it's overt what they're doing? Do you think somebody's there making a conscious choice or there's a yeah. group of people making that choice? I think there's a group of kind of cynical journalists who track, you know, what pieces get reactions, right? Um, and it's mostly kind of the online journalism world, box.com or whatever. And I think it's not that they intended to stir up a battle of, of the sexes in order to create, you know, more need and, and insecurity and polarization. But I think they noted that that is a direction you can go. Like that gets clicks, that gets a response. And so I think it's kind of marketing driven. I don't think there's a group of people kind of meeting in a New York hotel in secret, kind of like, how can we make men and women hate each other and then rule society? I don't think it's that. Um, I think it's a response to the kind of, um, the combination of men and women not really knowing what their sexuality should look like in the 21st century. And the social media and social media journalism kind of exploiting that insecurity. Mm. And then the political operators and pollsters and campaign managers kind of noticing, oh, this is an area where we can get traction. People are really interested in this. Do you think, uh, do you see any, do you have any insight as to how we can <coughs> move on from this? How we can start to move back towards the right place of connection between men and women and not having that fracture in society in general? Well, I think, you know, the rise of certain kinds of um, online culture and journalism, like, you know, these kinds of interviews or the intellectual dark web or Quillette or places that are kind of not quite academia but not quite mainstream journalism, that's great. I think that can help. It really only reaches the minority of people who care about kind of articulating ideas and learning about stuff. I think the thing that would make it go more mainstream would be sort of um, public figures. I mean, Jordan Peterson is kind of straddling this at the moment. Right? Right. He's got kind of one foot in the intellectual dark web, but one foot in the kind of Tony Robbins self-help mass movement yes. thing. Yeah. And I'm all for that. I think that's awesome. That's what I was trying to do with my mate book a few years ago, frankly. Mm -hmm. But I think what you need more is maybe, I don't know, celebrity couples going on camera together and kind of explaining, here's how we manage this in our relationship. Here's our power dynamics. Here's what we do. Take it or leave it. If it works for you, great, imitate it. Um, or even better, here's what we learned from this other power couple. Mm -hmm. um, I think you have to personalize it. And this is one reason why uh, my girlfriend Diana Fleischman and I have been doing interviews together is not that we've figured out everything, but we think it's important for articulate people to kind of be more open about their own relationships. And I think that can be quite healing at the kind of uh, political and, and ideological level.
I wish more people did do that. W one of the things we found in this country, for example, Theresa May, the prime mm -hmm. minister, well, I think when she first became prime minister, do you remember this, Francis? She came out and said that in their relationship with her husband, they have girl jobs and boy jobs. Mm -hmm. There's certain things that she does and he takes out the rubbish, for example, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And she got a ton of criticism for that. She yeah. probably got more criticism for that than for the decisions that she made as Home yeah. Secretary about yeah. immigration or whatever. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's going to take a lot of people doing what you are doing and other people. Yeah. Francis, when we become a celebrity couple. Yeah, we should do. Okay. And I, I do like the fact that Diana thought you were gay. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for bringing that up again. <laughs> that, that still offends him as a Russian dictator. <laughs> he can't get over his programming. The, the, there was one thing that I, I wanted to talk to you about, moving slightly on, and it's about mm -hmm. marketing, mm -hmm. and it's about how marketing companies use, uh, ev you know, use our evolutionary tendencies in order to manipulate us, in order to get us to mm -hmm. consume. Mm -hmm. Would you just be able to go into that a little bit? Yeah. So about ten years ago, I wrote a book called Spent. Sex, evolution, and consumer behavior. And it was about why do we buy goods and services, um, really? The usual explanation from economics is, oh, goods and services deliver utility and pleasure and value and happiness to us. And that's why. And like, that's good. That makes sense for certain things like whatever, pizza. Mm. But it doesn't make sense of a lot of other aspects of consumption. Like, why does anyone buy a Bugatti Veyron 1200 horsepower sports car, you know, when you could buy a Honda Civic and get around London just as quickly, actually? <laughs> or, you know, why do you spend 200 quid on a fine restaurant dinner on a first date instead of just going down to Nando's Chicken or whatever? <laughs> um, so I wanted to understand kind of conspicuous consumption, but also I wanted to understand things like educational credentialism, college degrees. Why do we want to get the Oxbridge degree so we can brag about it? Um, or why do we prefer taking um, dates to live comedy rather than just sitting at home and watching Netflix stand-up specials? So my solution to that was, well, we want to advertise certain virtues and traits that we have to others around us, particularly mates and friends. And certain goods and services are really good for, ident for kind of advertising certain traits that we have, like an educational credential advertises intelligence. Going to an edgy live comedy performance advertises openness. Right, because mm. you never know what the comic's going to talk about mm. on stage. So you have to be the kind of person who can kind of roll with it. And a highly traditionalist conservative person is not going to go see, you know, an Anthony Jeselnik comedy <laughs> show. Mm. I mean, they might by accident. But <laughs> once That'd they're there, be than any certainly not show. for a second time. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> once they're there with the date, it'll be like, oh. <laughs> this guy's a sociopath, I don't know. Um, so it, it was trying to understand what I think a lot of marketers already know but don't say, which is that they're not really selling the thing they think they're selling. They're selling an ability for this person to advertise this trait to these other people through the product. Mm. Wow. So in a sense... What we're really doing when we're just buying anything is we're displaying signals. Yeah, it's all signals. So, I mean, there's been a sort of gold rush to use signaling theory 
to explain a lot of aspects of human behavior the last few years. I've been doing it. Robin Hansen uh, with the, the elephant in the brain has been doing it. A lot of people suddenly are talking not just about virtue signaling mm. in, in politics or Twitter, but just signaling in general. Mm. And it's great because I think signaling really explains a lot. And I think even Darwin in the 1870s understood signaling explains a lot. So what about tattoos? Because mm. that's what, something I really wanted to ask. Because before yeah. tattoos were seen as something you did if you were a social pariah or a convict, mm -hmm. but now, I mean, I've got one, but why, yeah. is, why do we tattoo now? I then? still see it that way, mate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good question. And I, I didn't get tattoos at all until the girlfriend made me watch um, some reality TV tattoo um, things like uh, Ink Master, yeah. which is the big American uh, competition between tattoo artists. Mm. So I've, I've watched way more hours of Ink Master than I would want to admit. Yeah. And I do, I don't have any tattoos, but I do at least appreciate the artistry mm. and the culture and the different styles and how much it means to someone to kind of make a permanent commitment to like, this is part of my identity. This is a significant event in my life. This is an important person in my life. And I'm going to just, uh, seize it as part of my my persona and display it so everyone can see it. I think there's a kind of admirable courage in that. I think it's also a highly risky strategy because people can like change their minds about who they're in love with or what their identity is, is or what their political allegiance is or you know what their aesthetic taste is. So you can end up with the sort of oh God, this uh, I don't want anyone to see this because that was you know, 10 years ago, and I'm a different person now. It's like a tweet you can't delete. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's, a tattoo is the unde undeletable tweet. Yeah. 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 Uh, and uh, I don't know if you, if you have any thoughts on this, but just since we've gone down this, uh, this track of the conversation, do you have any um, kind of interesting thoughts about uh, the changes in how people uh, look and dress and like hipster beards mm -hmm. puzzle me? You've got mm -hmm. this like 20-year-old with a beard like down yeah. to his knees. Yeah. Like w what's that all about? I think for a lot of men, it's a, it's a search for authentic masculinity. Um, and I lived in New York in uh, 2013 when I was teaching at the business school there, and I dated a woman who lived in the sort of um, epicenter of Brooklyn hipster culture. So I got very, very familiar with hipster culture. And I kind of loved it. I loved the respect for the past and the sort of sense of connection to like dads and granddads and doing the same kind of shit that they did and going to the same <laughs> kind of barbers and like, and buying things that were intended to last not just till next fashion season, but for like, for decades. So I really appreciated that sort of sense of, of temporal continuity. Mm. Um, the attention to quality and craftsmanship and this sort of artisanal this and artisanal that, like I actually thought this is better than the throwaway hyper-consumerist culture that you saw before, like in the 80s. Um, at the time, I kind of appreciated the overlap between the hipster culture, the CrossFit culture, the paleo movement, which mm -hmm. I was involved in. And 
But I thought fundamentally, at least for the men, it really was about a sort of pushing back against the gender feminization of men. And it was sort of saying, I'm going to grow a beard, goddammit, and wear boots and be strong and be decisive about what kind of artisanal bacon I order for lunch and whatever. And I had a lot of respect for that. And I guess in a way it, it informed writing the mate book, mm. which was sort of dating advice for young guys. Not an explicitly hipster book, but um, it kind of took lessons from that, that movement. So your face is the one place you're still allowed to be a man, <laughs> just yeah. just just down here. Mm -hmm. uh, listen, we've got about. Uh, oh no, I was just going to ask a quick question because you know when I was in my twenties, I really struggled with with identity and finding someone, and mm -hmm. you know, and the dating was just awful. It's just horrible. Mm -hmm. it, and then I mean, we met. And then we met, and we've been <laughs> <laughs> and we've we've been loving ever since. Can you see the look of discomfort ah. on his face? <laughs> But if you've got some tips for, for men who are mm -hmm. looking, you know, and they want to meet someone, they want to display a, a value, and they want to, you know, attract mm -hmm. a mate, what's mm -hmm. the five easy ways, for instance, of displaying value, for instance? Buy and read my mate book. Um, <laughs> uh, we cover a lot of this also on the Mating Grounds podcast, yeah. which is online and yeah. free and whatever. Um, but I would say the, the main things are, um, number one, get physically strong. Like, do things that will make you physically strong, lift heavy things. Number two, um, wear clothes that fit and get advice from women and other men about, like, how to do that. Um, you wouldn't believe, like, if I get on any given, you know, London overground train and look at what the guys are wearing, my eyes are bleeding. It's like, how, how is anyone with two X chromosomes supposed to look at that and go, mm, yeah. <laughs> and and um, Jeffrey Miller destroys <laughs> British men. Yeah, that would be the clip, Jeffrey. No, British male taste is substantially better than Albuquerque male taste. <laughs> I will say that. Um, and I think what else? Read more nonfiction and watch less TV, probably, or listen to more podcasts with interesting, smart people and, and watch less TV, or do anything and play fewer video games. Mm. Like, yeah. I don't have, I think a lot of the manosphere is in this panic about you should never watch porn and never masturbate and never watch video games, and that's just dumb. But I think. Like, pay attention to how you're allocating your leisure time. Mm. And if you're allocating your leisure time in a way that builds you up into a more interesting person, women will notice mm. eventually. And you'll feel better about yourself and more confident about um, approaching women. And then finally, online dating is awesome. And just find an online dating app that actually lets you showcase what is good about yourself. If you look awesome, then Tinder is great. But if you don't look awesome, find some other dating app other than Tinder that lets you share more of your intelligence and creativity and verbal skills and humor and, and whatever. So yeah, that's my dating. So train your body, advice. train your brain. Listen to trigonometry. Listen yeah, to trigonometry, exactly. absolutely. That's right. Well, listen, before uh, we've got about 10 minutes, uh, let's talk politics uh, a little bit.
Uh, I, I'm curious because I think as an evolution psychologist, you might have quite some insight into the place that we are at now in terms of how divided we are, mm -hmm. how polarized we are, how tribal we've become. Because, and, yeah. and that strikes me, like I see that instinct within myself to, to, go, to, to, to find the tribe and to go, oh, this is what I am, everyone else is evil, fight, mm -hmm. fight, fight. And I have to resist that urge within myself. But I think a lot of us, we don't, we don't do that. We just dive in, we start attacking other people. So where, where are we? How are we there? What, what is it about us as human beings that makes us yes. that way? And how can we depolarize ourselves? I think one important thing to remember is that when humans were evolving for the last couple million years, we were very often in contact with other hominids, other bipedal hominids running around on two legs with pretty big brains who were different species or different mm. subspecies who weren't, who were literally not us. Like they weren't us, they were competing with us. And we get kind of confused because we're the last hominid standing. Like we out-competed all of them and they went extinct. Some of them, we, we poached some of their genes like the Neanderthals or the Denisovans or, you know, whatever. But we didn't evolve in a kind of multicultural kumbaya kind of setting where everyone <laughs> got along, right? Yeah. We evolved to compete against other beings that kind of looked like us and kind of didn't, and where we weren't probably not very nice to them and not very welcoming. <laughs> That's another <laughs> statement right there, Jeffrey. <laughs> so We probably killed them brutally, let's, let's we be We probably... We killed them brutally, but we probably also just kind of outcompeted them. And like, yeah. we got this cave, and they didn't get the cave, and there they are, freezing to death, and we don't give a shit. Mm. Um, so, at one level, it's absolutely astonishing that you can have a multicultural city like modern London with millions of people from hundreds of countries, and not have massive like ethnic riots all the time. It's amazing we can achieve that. That's not something that could have been predicted maybe 500 years ago. So I think when people go, oh no, we're so partisan and, and racist and xenophobic, it's like compared to what? Compared to what standard? Compared to angels, maybe. Compared to what you would have expected given our evolutionary history. It's astonishing that multicultural societies work as well as they do. And they don't work perfectly. And maybe they're not optimal, but uh, you know the evolutionary perspective lets you just give people a little bit of credit for things being as peaceful as they are. Well, it's not just the evolutionary perspective. For me, someone who comes from Russia as an mm -hmm. immigrant to this country, mm -hmm. first generation, the perspective of having lived in places outside of mm -hmm. Western Europe and North America, mm -hmm. it it teaches you very quickly about how tolerant and welcoming and accepting and not homophobic and all the rest of it this yeah. country is or this part of the world is. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think we've definitely lost a sense of just like what are we comparing to? Yeah. Absolutely. But I think there is no, there's no question that our societies are now more divided than they mm -hmm. have been for a while. Not ever, of course, that's ridiculous, but then they have been for yeah. a while. In America, the political side <laughs> of it, as we <clears throat> talked about, you know, the race and gender has mm -hmm. become, I mean, I don't think anyone sees the next Democratic nominee for president as a straight white man. It's just not going to happen, is it? Yeah. And, and that's, how, that's how predictable it's become, right? Mm -hmm. So 
what are some of the, the ways that we can start to take to take that edge off politics and start to come back to, to a genuine conversation about issues and yeah it's really tough I mean there's there's basically two paths that you can choose to go one is kind of double down on multiculturalism and say this is the path forward and let's figure out how to make it work as well as possible and the other path is a kind of freedom of association that says you know what if a certain group wants to like sort of take over a certain neighborhood or gated community or city and just have it for them then they should be able to do that and and there's like nothing wrong with that that's the historical norm um, is it and it's quite is that sorry to interrupt yeah. is that the position you're advocating I think it's a thing that's worth experimenting with because a lot a, of people would be troubled by that, I know, yeah. certainly. Yeah. yeah, well, they can be troubled by it. And they, can, <laughs> they, they can form their own community where they can get together and be troubled by it. But is there not an argument for a nation, uh, Jeffrey, the idea that we are all, let's say, British, right? Yeah. We, we all come to this country, we all integrate, we all talk to one another, mm -hmm. uh, we all understand, we all have a common set of values, we maybe have a national service where we all go mm -hmm. and meet people from different ethnic groups and whatever. Yeah. Uh, I know a lot of people, you know, one of our recent guests, Peter Hitchens, mm -hmm. talked about the fact that one of the problems with mass immigration mm -hmm. is that people don't integrate, and then yeah. everyone lives in their own ghetto. And I certainly would, as someone who is an immigrant, mm -hmm. I would be troubled if there was a Russian ghetto of 100,000 Russians in the center of yeah. London. Yeah. I would be troubled by that. Or as it's otherwise called Mayfair. <laughs> <laughs> but that's yeah. a very particular thing, right? Yeah. So I, I, I would be very worried about living in a society where essentially we all became our own little tribe yeah. that lived in its own little place. And we're not, I don't see that as still being a nation, really. Right, so what you need is, uh, if you're going to have a nation at all, right, mm. it's either got to be an ethno state where it's sort of defined by ethnicity or it's got to be civic nationalism yeah. where it's defined by shared language, values, education, mass media, um, everybody buying into like the same criminal justice system and the same norms for how the sexes relate and how the mating market operates and all of that. And you can totally have civic nationalism that can succeed. It succeeded okay in America and in Britain. What you can't have is a nation where it's fake civic nationalism, where you give lip service to civic nationalism, but you don't actually have integration, mm. right? If it's like, welcome to Britain, you don't have to learn English. Welcome to Britain, you don't have to respect our, our criminal justice system. Yeah. Welcome to Britain, you don't actually have to join our educational system. I think that's a recipe for, for catastrophe. Yeah, I think that's why a lot of people, that's why I wanted to clarify what yeah. you said, because a lot of people would have heard you saying that. Yeah. Um, and I, I think a lot of people would be troubled by that, as I am. I'm troubled yeah. by that, yeah. you know, I'm troubled yeah. by that. I think we do need a, a genuine civic nationalism where we mm. all have it. We, there are some values that everybody understands mm -hmm. as being mm -hmm. British values. We all buy into that. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that's not the direction that we seem to be going in. You know, even saying that seems to be, oh, you're racist <laughs> yeah. somehow. You know, the idea that we should all have a common set of values or a common <coughs> language or, yeah. you know, whatever. But I think, well, the other thing is I'm not necessarily advocating civic nationalism because mm. I think it's important to realize it is an experiment. Mm. It has not withstood the test of time for centuries. It's not typical of most nation states throughout history. 
it's also not typical of most nation states currently around the world, yeah. right? China is a Han Chinese ethno state, mm. right? Mm. It's more than 95% Han Chinese. Yeah. They have no interest in making it into a civic national state. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's not their goal. They're not, they're not gonna be like, we yeah. love Russians, come live with us Russians. That's not gonna happen. Mm. So it remains to be seen in the coming decades mm how does their model of a kind of technocratic, long-term thinking, slightly despotic, like ethnostate, yeah. how well does that play out compared to, let's say, multicultural British civic nationalism? Do, do I hear you s suggesting that they're probably more competitive as, yes. as a system? Well, who's going to colonize Mars first? China, obviously. Yeah. Um, who's going to dominate the world in terms of soft power? China, I think, obviously. Mm. So I think it's important to, you know, while Europe and America are sort of squabbling about our partisanship and toxic masculinity <laughs> and whatever we're worried about, to keep our eye on the fact that we've already kind of become a sideshow to the, to the main current of, of Civilization, which is Han China, and and I'm in a way I'm sort of more interested in what they do long term mm. than what happens in Britain or America. Mm. Well, wow. just to stick for a second with what's happening in Britain and America before we go to our final mm. question, um, I wanted to talk to you about free speech because it's something that mm. you are passionate about. It's something you've spoken about. I think you kind of really started speaking out when the James Damore thing happened. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've had some experience with this in the UK. Um, but talking about free speech on campus in America, mm -hmm. tell us what's happening there. Because we watch it from, from here. We hear about people being you know, platformed, violence on, on campuses, yeah. all of this stuff. Where is the, because you have that enshrined in your constitution as, mm -hmm. as a very kind of important principle of, of your civilization almost, yeah. right? Yeah. What is happening with free speech in the United States, particularly on campuses? The situation's getting a little better, but very, very slowly. I think five years ago was probably peak um, censorship in terms of almost nobody respecting free speech rights. I've been involved in my university and faculty senate. I, I kept trying to pass resolutions saying, we are a public university. Technically, we are an arm of the state. We are a part of the federal government. We are not obeying the Constitution. We are, we, here's a dozen policies that violate the First Amendment. And the other senators would be like, so what? We don't give a shit. Free speech <laughs> is an outdated medieval concept. Like, medieval. <laughs> yeah, there was loads really? of free speech in medieval like, times. Really? Yeah. That's, that's it. <laughs> and, um, so when, when Trump came out a couple of weeks ago and said, I'd like to do an executive order that says, it, man, if you're in a public university and you do not, follow First Amendment free speech principles, I will cut off federal funding. Mm. I was like, yay, this is what we need. I've been advocating that for two years. Um, that is the only thing that will get administrators to take free speech seriously. Mm. Nothing else will, I know, because I've tried it. And then, sadly, some of my free speech colleagues were like, this is terrible, this is top down, we can't have this associated with Trump. And it's like, are you guys kidding? If Obama had done this, if Obama had said, respect free speech or I cut funding, everybody would be going, yay. 
at least the pro-free speech left. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think um, I'm guardedly optimistic that Trump might follow through on this. I hope if he does an executive order that it's well written and that it fits constitutional law. Um, I hope that universities will react to it by saying, you're right. Mm -hmm. We we were bad. We were bad, and we're going to try to, you know, play nice according to the Constitution. My worry is that it'll just create more polarization, and people will be like, "Fuck you, Trump!" We're free speech is just a cover for hate speech, and and we're not going to do any of this. And because there's a lot of people who believe that, you know, free speech, like you said, is a cover for hate speech. Mm -hmm. Can you just articulate, and I, as somebody whose mother comes from Venezuela, I can't believe I'm asking this question, mm -hmm. but why is free speech on campus and outside so important? Mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm sorry for the question, but I have to <laughs> ask it. No, free, free speech is important generally because we should all be humble about what we know and what we believe and open to changing our minds. And you can't have an open public debate that shares information freely if you have certain groups of people saying, that's forbidden, that's forbidden, that viewpoint is invalid. You need to actually have a rough and tumble, like radically honest conversation in society. Now, the trouble is, that actually depends on the infrastructure of civic nationalism. Mm. It actually depends on people knowing a common language, mm. having some common values, having some common historical education. And some common sense. And some common sense, and we don't have that. <laughs> <laughs> and then the second part is why is free speech so important on campuses is campuses are the point of ideological indoctrination in America. That's where you learn the proper views that you're supposed to have. And the left has understood this since the late 60s, right? They realized we're in a culture war. We win the culture war by taking over K through 12 education and higher education and indoctrinating people to have certain values and telling them certain other values are beyond the pale. And they succeeded. They, they won that culture war. And the only way to win it back is a, advocate free speech, and B, make better arguments. Well, speaking of free speech and making better arguments, uh, it's been a great interview, Jeffrey. And our last question always is, uh, what's the one thing that no one's talking about that we ought to be talking about? I, well, I got, in, I got in this effective altruism movement about five years ago. I teach a course on it. And I think... Um, the thing that used to frighten the crap out of me was artificial intelligence. But the last year or so, the thing that more frightens the crap out of me is what always frightened the crap out of me in college, nuclear war. Mm. Nuclear war is still the biggest existential risk that humanity faces. Nuclear winter is a much stronger risk than climate change. Right? What is climate change? Oh no, the climate might get two or three degrees hotter. Nuclear winter is like, oh no, the climate might be 20 or 30 degrees cooler. That's a bigger risk. And so what I don't see politicians and citizens doing is talking seriously about, there are still a lot of nukes. They're still out there. We just had India and Pakistan almost escalate into that. Um, China has nukes, Russia has nukes. This is still a live issue, but it's almost like 
oh, we're bored. We're bored with nuclear war, man. We've like we, we've all seen the Terminator movies, and and that's so 20th century to worry about that. I think we could be blindsided by it, right? We don't want to be in a situation where we go, oh shit, we lost our species and our civilization because we got bored with the biggest existential risk, <laughs> and we kind of moved on to this relatively minor X risk like mm -hmm. climate change or bioterrorism or AI. So that's the thing people aren't talking about. Um, and I highly recommend the, the book, uh, The Doomsday Machine by Daniel Ellsberg, mm. that talks about just the nearly continually catastrophic bad nuclear strategy that the US had throughout the Cold War mm. that almost blew us up over and over and over and over again. So that deserves more more, more attention, I think. Fantastic, Jeffrey. Well, thank you for coming on. Yeah, uh, if pleasure. you enjoyed this interview, follow Jeffrey on Twitter at Primal Poly. Buy his book, The Mating Mind. You've got other books as well, haven't you? Spent and Mate. Spent and Mate. Um, and uh, the podcast. Remind us the podcast. Oh, The Mating Grounds. The Mating Grounds. Podcast. Uh, follow us, as always, uh, at TriggerPod on all the social media. Subscribe to the YouTube channel. Click the bell button next to the subscribe button. What, iTunes as well? Yeah, leave a review on iTunes. And sometimes, guys, we've noticed a little trend that uh, people on YouTube say they have been unsubscribed. Could you please just check it for us? And if it's subscribe, unsubscribe, subscribe again and let us know because we're going to start kicking up a bit of a fuss about it. All right, guys. Thanks very much. We'll see you in a week's time. See you later. Bye-bye. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.